Good afternoon, listeners. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. I ended the show last week um, mentioning, I I mentioned very briefly whether Hooting Yard, the website, would be um, available to Chinese users of the new Google.cn, the uh, Google service that does the Chinese government's censorship work for them. Um, And there's been a lot of kerfuffle about google.cn rightly so probably but what's been overlooked um is that google have issued launched another new service which is far more admirable um this is there's google.com do google.co.uk now google.cn and now google.dbsn it's a genuinely useful tool because it automatically filters out all search results which are unrelated to Dobson, Dobson's out-of-print pamphlets, and other relevant Dobsonia. So, for example, if you type, say, swarm of killer bees into google.com, you end up with a completely unmanageable 102,000 results. The vast majority of these will have no Dobson connection whatsoever, So what's the likelihood that any sane person would ever wish to consult them? By contrast, if you type swarm of killer bees into google.dbsn, it comes up with just 183 results, and every single one of them is highly relevant. Some will take you directly to transcripts of original Dobson pamphlets, such as killer bees, ferenc pushgas, and tomatoes on the vine, or how I coped with a collapsed lung during a thunderstorm. Others will lead you to one of the many sites devoted to piecing together a complete biography of Dobson. And you'll even be able to track down references to the more recondite aspects of Dobson's killer bee preoccupations, such as the Blotsman Compartments controversy of 1934. After that, piece um, after notes about that appeared on the Hooting Yard website, I got a letter from the ever-curious Tim Thurn, a regular reader and a regular correspondent. Tim wrote, Dear Mr Key, in last Thursday's piece entitled Google News, you make passing mention of the Blotsman Compartments controversy of 1934. I confess that I have no idea what a Blotsman Compartment is or was, and would be extremely grateful if you could enlighten me. Yours sincerely, Tim Thurn. Well, Tim, I'll do my best, but I warn you that getting to grips with Blotsman compartments is no easy matter. Have you ever looked into the fathomless black pools of an owl's eyes? If you have, you will know that eerie sense of confronting an unutterably alien, cold, unyielding energy. It was this sense of otherness that motivated Blotsman when he built the first of the notorious compartments. We still have some of his working notes, but they help us little. Couched as they are in a dense academic, or pseudo-academic, language which may have made no sense even to Blotsman. Phrases such as By extension, most advanced peristomal border plating is noted for an unusual hydropore gonopore in the axismal interray and the position of juvenile summit-mounted proximal tegmens and theca flummox the best of brains.
We do know that whenever Blotzmann constructed a compartment, he made sure a fully functioning thanatophore was primed and ready in the corner of his workshop. As he learned to manipulate the compartments, Blotzmann became more open about his intentions. He introduced a swivelling panel on top of each compartment, allowing viewers the opportunity for a fleeting glimpse of activity within. The panels were attached to a small motor, fixed to the side of the compartment, powered from a source which Blotzmann always refused to divulge, though it's likely to have been a simple dry cell battery. It may even have been a dry... Sorry, it may even have been a wet cell battery, if such a thing exists. Knowing nothing of batteries and their workings, I'm reluctant to say any more about this for the time being. Arriving at the optimal size of the compartments was a hit-and-miss affair, which usually found Blotzmann gritting his teeth. A study by Howell and Flapper determined that the smallest compartment could fit inside a standard pastry carton, while the largest one known to exist blotted out the moon and the stars. This reminds us of Blotzmann's insistence that his compartments were never exposed to daylight, leading to absurd accusations in the gutter press that there was vampiric intent behind the entire project. Fire and flood destroyed all the Blotzmann compartments one by one over a period of 17 years. Blotzmann was sanguine, he himself had the black eyes of an owl and hair that resembled feathers. Make of that what you will. You would not be the first to posit a madcap theory. I've been out and about over the last week or so doing a series of Vox Pop interviews, um, <clears throat> but being technically inept, um, I haven't been able to make recordings of them. Um, my my modus operandi is simply to transcribe the, uh, the, the, the speeches of my interviewees. So here's the first of, of these brief Vox Pop interviews, um, and this is with... Um, a Pang Hill orphan. And he said, this is a transcript of exactly his words. My name is Sago, and I am a glum inmate of Pang Hill Orphanage. I was born in a faraway land. My papa was a crusty man who fell into a pond and never surfaced. Later, they found a vent at the bottom of the pond, which led to a chute which in turn led to a hideous abode of doom. My mamma collected flies and fleas and similar wee beasts, often but not always winged ones. One day, soon after Papa plunged down the chute at the bottom of the pond, she took a little paper bag with some of her flies in it to the Parliament building of that faraway land and when she showed reluctance to open the bag to the security guards at the magnetic barrier in the lobby, they shot her dead. That is the kind of land I come from. I spent a few months living off berries and rainwater and living in a cave on the coastline. 
Then, the captain of an illegal fishing smack scooped me out of the tide pool where I was happily paddling and brought me thousands of miles across the storm-tossed ocean and delivered me to the gates of Pang Hill Orphanage. That is my story in its broad outlines. I would tell you more, but it's time now for my morning brain scan. No one at the orphanage has ever explained to me why each orphan's brain is scanned three times a day, but I have made a plasticine copy of the key to the room behind the canteen in which lurk the filing cabinets where the brain scan results are stored, and soon I'm going to skulk in there at dead of night and examine all the results very, very closely, and then I'm going to shred them, for I fear nobody and nothing. I am a glum orphan, but I am stupendously brave and clever, and my name is Sago. Time now for some factual information. You know that here at Hooting Yard we like to keep you informed of various things. Um, this is uh, just really some notes about the Russian composer Alexander Skriabin. Much of the work of the Russian composer Alexander Skriabin, 1872 to 1915, was written for piano. This is surprising when one considers how tiny his hands were. Indeed, there were two occasions during his short, fraught life when he injured them while relentlessly practising piano pieces which called for hands larger than his own. Tiny his hands may have been, but this puny neurasthenic Russian cultivated a pair of decisive mustachios. Among his orchestral works, the Poem of Ecstasy, Opus 54, is a supremely bonkers piece which, long before Spinal Tap, goes up to 11. In fact, I think it goes up to 12. One critic imagined he was hearing a graphic portrayal of the players all having sex with each other. Another refers to the, quote, malignant sneers from muted trombones. Was music ever more evil-sounding? Unquote. Not everyone appreciated Skriabin at the time, of course. The man who was chosen to conduct the premiere of his second symphony complained as follows. After Skriabin, Wagner lisps sweetly like a suckling babe. I think that I will go mad any moment now. Where can one hide from such music? Help me! My favourite Skriabin piece is the, the Mysterium. This was designed as a total artwork involving an orchestra, dance, light and exotic perfumes. To be performed in the Himalayas, it's playing ushering in Armageddon. Mysterium would be a grandiose religious synthesis of all arts which would herald the birth of a new world and the emergence of a Nietzschean superman. Just from the performance of... You know, one performance of the work would result in this. Whether this Superman would have tiny little hands and decisive mustachios, we do not know. 
for Scriabin succumbed to septicemia when the composition was barely begun. And it thus has a place in the museum of lost or non-existent works of art, about which I shall be telling you more in the coming weeks if I manage to find out any more. Last week on the show, I read a story called The Nord and the Chewed, and it featured a character called Vlasto Pismire, um, the Lembit Opic MP lookalike, whose incessant prattling transfixed Dobson for months and months. Of course, Vlasto Pismire is not to be confused with another Vlasto to whom we now turn. Vlasto Cuddy was a tall, stooping sort of person who spent most of his time standing on top of a crate by numberless curbs and roadsides, elegantly attired, flailing his spookily long arms, pontificating at passers-by. He sounds familiar, but I can't quite place him. Possibly you do not recognise the name. Very, very few people knew him as Vlasto Cuddy, for he became familiar to thousands, perhaps even millions, under his sobriquet, the Pontificating Fruitarian. Ah yes, that rings a bell. Many bells, I expect. Vlasto Cuddy, the Pontificating Fruitarian, spent more than 50 years declaiming his blinkered dietary opinions to the passing throng. Sometimes the throng passed more quickly than was seemly. Sometimes it could hardly be called a throng at all. Sometimes there were torrential downpours, and at other times the light of the big bright sun battered mercilessly upon the face of the earth, and in these and all other weather conditions there would be a roadside somewhere in the world where at dawn of day a tall, stooping sort of person would deposit his crate and clamber atop it and begin his fruit-related pontificating, and scarcely cease until night fell down. Remind me of the nature of his pontificating. By all means. Vlasto Cuddy would shout, for example, that pride and lust, a corrupt pride of heart and a furious filthy lust of body, are the non-fruitarian's springs of action a desire to act the beast without control and live like a devil without check of conscience, his only reasons for opposing the existence of fruit. Vlasto Cuddy would thunder that a world of creatures are up in arms against the non-fruit eater to kill him as they would a venomous mad dog. He called those who eschew plums and tangerines absurd fools, beasts, dirty monsters, brutes, gloomy dark animals, enemies of humankind, wolves to civil society, butchers and murderers of the human race. Moreover, he who eats anything other than lemons and other citrus fruit is cursed in the following hearty terms. 
Let the glorious mass of fire burn him. Let the moon light him to the gallows. Let the stars in their courses fight against the wretch who eats other than fruit. Let the force of the comet dash him to pieces. Let the roar of thunders strike him deaf. Let red lightnings blast his guilty soul. Let the sea lift up her mighty waves to bury him. Let the lion tear him to pieces. Let dogs devour him. Let the air poison him. Let the next crumb of bread choke him. Nay, let the dull ass spurn him to death. I remember now. I was always puzzled by that last bit, for I do not think it possible to die simply from being spurned by an ass had the pontificating fruitarian done his research. He had indeed. Vlasto Cuddy's sister, the divine Miss Patience Cuddy, rose to prominence in the world of donkey-rearing, and she often conducted experiments in which volunteers from a nearby orphanage subjected themselves to spurning by asses and donkeys. Some died as a result. Surely that cannot be so. I grant there was talk in the taverns that the divine Miss Patience may have falsified some of her data, but nothing was ever proven. Tell me, was the divine Miss Patience a fruitarian like her tall, stooping brother? No, she was not. Her, his pontifications were lost on her, for he was forever roaming the world with his crate, while she rarely ventured far from her donkey compound on the banks of the river that runs through Ack. <clears throat> Did Flasto Cuddy, the pontificating fruitarian, never commit any of his pontifications to paper? Did he not take a leaf out of Dobson's book, that is to say, and publish his pontifications as pamphlets? He did not, for the surprising fact is that Vlasto Cuddy was functionally illiterate. It is said that he never had time to learn to read or write, because he was far too busy concentrating all the powers of his formidable mind upon the subject of fruit. Will you be introducing readers to further Vlastos in addition to Vlasto Pismire and Vlasto Cuddy? Not if I can help it. Just to remind listeners that, of course, Hooting Yard, the website, is um, all of the texts that I read here can be found online there. Um, the address is kind of long, and the quickest way to go there is simply to put Hooting Yard into google.com or, or .dbsn, um, and it will be the first page you'll come to. Um, and also, podcasts of past shows are available um, go to Re the Resonance website, click on podcasts, and all will be revealed. And finally, um, don't forget that Hooting Yard on the Air is repeated at 8.30 on Saturday mornings. And this is a story entitled Surgeon's Biscuit. Some people think Surgeon's Biscuit is the name of a town near Kakadam. 
Others believe it's an old parlour game popular in the boarding houses of seaside resorts during the 1930s. There are those who suspect it to be the name of a racehorse or perhaps a racing pigeon or some other bird or beast of swiftness. Surgeon's biscuit is, of course, none of these things. It's simply a biscuit that belonged to a surgeon. But what a biscuit! And what a surgeon! As biscuits go, it was the finest specimen the surgeon had ever seen. Two-thirds of the way down a perfectly ordinary-looking packet of digestive crumblies, there it nestled, a numinous, almost golden thing, some quirk in its baking making it unutterably different from its fellows in the batch. He remembered when he first handled it. He was not a man to transfer his newly purchased biscuits into a so-called biscuit tin or biscuit barrel or similar container. He ate them straight from the packet, as he had been brought up to do by his rough-tough parents in their rough-tough hovel, who can never have expected little Vladimir to grow up to become an important surgeon. So on that day, during the last pathetic gasps of the Nixon administration, he took the next biscuit from the pack without even looking at it. Sitting at his large, important desk in his spacious, important consulting rooms, his attention was fixed on page 46, column 2, line 15 of the Haemoglobin Monitor, where his name appeared misspelled yet again. Why was it, he wondered, slowly moving the fabulous biscuit from the opened packet towards his mouth, that despite being the country's most famous surgeon, despite being referred to in virtually every haemoglobin-related article of note for the past three decades, not a single medical journal ever managed to spell his name correctly. He was about... <coughs> excuse me. He was about to bite his biscuit when something stopped him. Coughing, probably. Hang on. <coughs> <coughs> Still with me? He was about to burr. He was about to bite his biscuit when something stopped him. A black beetle crawled across the magazine page and came to a dead halt on his name. Vladimir shuddered, as if this were some presentiment of doom, which it was, and ditched his biscuit-eating plan. And it was then that he looked at the biscuit for the first time. He had been holding it for ha perhaps eight or nine seconds without paying it the least attention. Now, as the black beetle sat still on his misspelled name, dying of a rare black beetle disease, he not only saw the biscuit, but felt it. Indeed, all his senses apprehended this majestic biscuit. And a spark lit up in his brain, just as the last spark in the black beetle's brain was extinguished. And he said to himself, I am a great surgeon, and this is a great biscuit. Rather than bite into it and chew it and digest this digestive crumbly, I'm going to put it in a box and preserve it, and it will forever after be known as Surgeon's Biscuit. That sounded like the end, but it's not. Some say the soul of the black beetle escaped its dead shell and imbued the biscuit at that very instant. 
but black beetles do not have souls, and the biscuit was just a biscuit, and Vladimir himself was only an average surgeon, albeit a surgeon of enormous learning in the field of haemoglobin, but a surgeon with a deluded and preposterous sense of self-importance. And that is the real story of Surgeon's Biscuit. It's hard to credit, but it's exactly 50 years ago today that Dobson, the out-of-print pamphleteer, made his one and only appearance on the radio. He was booked to appear on the then-popular show Bad Gas and Forts, a sort of uncategorizable hour of talk, static and field recordings, hosted by an anonymous spook known only as the gravel-voiced ghoul. Dobson's participation was the result of a long campaign by Marigold Chu, who spent months standing outside the producer's office building, holding a flag and haranguing passers-by to sign a petition. The producer had sworn an oath that Dobson would never appear on the show, apparently because of some otherwise forgotten incident involving a rowing boat and a flock of bitterns. Marigold Chu was eventually able to prove that the oath contravened the ancient law of civil and persuivant debailing, and it was struck down by Magisterium Bossa Nova in Chancery. The show was broadcast live, and no recording was made. However, by pasting together the shreds of a hastily scribbled transcription, it's possible to get some idea of what took place. The ghoul's first guest was an elderly writer who had defected from the Soviet Union. In the immediate post-revolutionary period, he had written a series of heartwarming tales about a peasant family under the title Little Yurt on the Tundra. With the suppression of the Kulaks and under pressure from the Comintern, he rewrote these works as Little Foundry on the Collective Farm. If the transcript is reliable, the remarks he made were punctuated by loud hammering noises. Similar to, but not quite like... But, you know, loud hammering. After about ten minutes, the gravel-voiced ghoul introduced Dobson. Asked to continue the theme of cloying, family-centred storytelling, the pamphleteer embarked on a lengthy anecdote about the books his ma read to him as a child. Here, as far as can be pieced together, is what he said. My ma was a huge fan of detective... I'm going to begin that quotation again. My ma was a huge fan of detective fiction, so my bedtime stories tended to be whatever she was reading at the time. One of her favourites was Dorothy Sleet, who wrote a series of whodunits featuring Rex Shroud, orrery sleuth. Shroud was a sleuth all of whose cases involved an orrery at some point in the story. What is that hammering noise? Sleet created one of the classic detectives, I think. 
He may not be quite on a par with MP Shields' Prince Zaleski, but she put a lot of thought into giving the orrery sleuth all sorts of idiosyncrasies to make him a memorable and fully rounded character, not just a solver of puzzles. He has a false lung, too many teeth, and is a daily practitioner of Baxterism. His lantern is ruby red. At moments of high desperation, he will invariably fiddle about with a little tin of talcum powder. He keeps blotting paper in his pocket, and that hammering is really getting on my nerves. Perhaps the best story Dorothy Sleet ever wrote was the orrery sleuth and the pod people from the weird parallel world out of time and space. You think you're reading science fiction, but that's just narrative pyrotechnics. It is, I think, both valiant and boisterous, as the best prose always tries to be. She was a woman of baleful countenance, Dorothy Sleet, and kept many tortoises in her seaside bungalow. She married four times, and each of her husbands vanished unaccountably. The first three simply vaporised in the kitchen while making omelettes, and the fourth was last seen in Ireland in the vicinity of the wobbling virgin of Ballinspittle. At this point, the hammering noises drowned out Dobson. And if there were hammering going on here, it would now drown out me, because that's the end of Hooting Yard on the air for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been both instructive and entertaining. And um, listen again next week. Bye-bye.